get wired up here. How is everybody this morning? Good. Man, I even I even put on a pair of khakis today for you, instead of instead of jeans or shorts. Well, if I got to do, I have to be honest. I should be honest if I'm going to share, right? I had a business appointment, and and I only wore them for an hour, and I, and then they had to go to the dry cleaners. I thought that's a waste. So I thought I. Sometimes I'm too honest, too transparent. Um, I want to thank uh, Matt for allowing me to share as he and Jill are out on a, on a wonderful opportunity just to be refreshed and uh, this week. And I want to share with you a little bit about something that's really dear to my heart. Then I want to talk to you about Foursquare Mission Press and a ministry called the Children's Gospel Box. <clears throat> now... How many have ever heard about the Children's Gospel Box before? Nobody. Well, that's wonderful. You're going to learn about it today. And I think once you learn about it, you're going to be so excited about it and what God's doing through that ministry that you'll want to be a part of it. I know that um, Pastor Matt is excited about it, and he wanted me to share that with you. But I want to share with you, first of all, just more from my heart. Um, again, I pastored for 40 years, and... Children's ministry and children were not, it scared me. Can I tell you that uh, one of the churches I had uh, that I pastored in Ontario, California, we had a daycare, and it was a big daycare. We had over 100 kids. And so every Wednesday, we had a chapel service, and they wanted me to speak. I mean, I could get up and speak in front of anybody, any size crowd, but when I had to go speak at that chapel service on Wednesdays, I was freaking out. I, I, I would, what am I going to sh- share? You know, what am I going to do? And I just couldn't relate. Karen and I didn't have children. In fact, we didn't have children for the first 18 years of our marriage. And we didn't think we could have children. And then God blessed us with our daughter, Hannah. So being around children was not something I was really comfortable with. In fact, early on, we were that young couple. Now, you know this young couple sitting in the restaurant who gives you the dirty look when your kid is fussing at the table. It's kind of like, why did you invite that kid here when we came for a nice dinner? You know, and you shut the kid up or take him out. What are you doing? You know, we came here to eat. We we were that couple and we repent. Because you don't know until you have kids, right? And you're out there. Now, can I say, I think you should take them out if they're really squirreling, you know, and have a little come to Jesus meeting with them, bring them back. And that's what I do with my daughter. But the point is, is that it's unpredictable. You don't know when it's going to like the rocket's going to fire. And so, you know, I didn't have any concept of children. Here I was with all these children. So I finally got um, a a puppet, a, a skunk puppet. I called him Stinky. And, and Stinky was my salvation. So Stinky and I would do Wednesdays. So then, then, in, then in, when I was pastoring in Weatherford, Texas, um, again, children's ministry wasn't really just, I knew it was critical and important because I, do- I had a child then. And, and I, I knew we should be doing it. And we did the bare minimum of what we could do. Because we were a, a small church starting up. Um, and we had... 
I think our first Sunday, it was a church that was closed down. We came in to reopen it. Our first Sunday, we had 35 in attendance, 35 people. And that was after working some outside fairs and handing out flyers and having ads in the newspaper and going door to door to hundreds of homes. You know, we were thinking we're going to we're going to blow the socks off on our first Sunday, right? Easter Sunday, brand new church and 35 people showed up and about five or six of them are people that would never come back again because they were just visiting us. <laughs> so we had about 30 people and then it went down to seven. And then one Sunday I thought it was going to be three. Uh, Karen and I and Hannah looked out the window and no one had arrived and it was 1029. It was almost 1030 time to to start. And my daughter said, I don't think anyone's coming, Dad. <laughs> she was like nine at that time. And I said, well, don't worry, sweetheart. We'll have church. And then one person straggled in and another three people came in and we had church around a table and, and we had communion together and it, all the wind was knocked out of me. And, and so I was thinking of building a church. I was thinking of starting this new ministry. And, and I, children's ministry just wasn't on my radar. I mean, I, I needed somebody for that because it just wasn't like, can I just be honest? It wasn't my heart. It wasn't my heart. And then something happened along the way. And I'll tell a little bit of that story as we get in there. But I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew 18. Now, when you think of Matthew 18, <clears throat> let me tell you what you normally think about. If two or three are present together, there I am in the midst of them. And if two or more agree upon something, it'll be done by my Father in heaven. How many know those verses? Yeah, we're down with that on Matthew 18. And then Matthew 18 also has the stuff about, about if someone sins against you, go first and be reconciled with your your, your offended person, the offended person. If you can't be reconciled, bring someone else with them. Don't gossip. It's talking about dealing with the deal, right? In between each other. And then if that can't be reconciled, bring the church and work it out within the concept of your family. That's what Matthew 18 is all about. But the first 14 verses are different. Now let me set up this chapter for you because there's one, if I can ever leave you with something of importance in studying your Bible, it's the word context. Now, there, Jesus' promise books have become popular in Christian circles. And you may have one, and I'm not, please, I'm not throwing it totally under the bus. But here's the one thing a Jesus' promise book doesn't do. It doesn't put the verse in the context of what was happening. And context is everything. You know, I mean, if, if you don't understand what I've said before and what I say after, what I'm saying now will make no sense to you. That's why I gave you a little bit of my preliminary introduction so you knew where I'm coming from, right? And now I'm going to tell you what I want to tell you and then close it with a little bit on the backside so you have context of what I'm saying. Matthew 17 is the chapter that talks about the great transfiguration of Jesus. And that's a pretty cool chapter. I mean, how many of you would have wanted to be in Peter, James, or John going up there and seeing Jesus transfigured? You know, man, and there's Moses and, and, and Elijah. Boom, you know, it's like Peter doesn't know what to do. And he looks and he goes, let's make some tents. You know, I mean, we, we got to stay here. And, and Jesus, no, no. so finally they leave and then they have to go down the mountain. But while they were on the mountain having this tremendous experience 
and Jesus was glowing in all of his glory. The other nine were down the hill, and, and they had this difficulty with a young boy who had a demon. He was demon-possessed, and, and the demon was throwing the boy down and thrashing the boy, and, and they said, disciples, you know, you're Jesus' disciples, come and, and cast the demon out of him. And, and they were trying down there desperately, desperately. Come on. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a situation where it was like over your pay grade, and I think that's where they found themselves, and, and they didn't know what was going wrong. They couldn't help this young boy. And now here comes Peter, James, and John down the mountain, and Jesus sees that, and, and, and he gets kind of upset, not just at the disciples, but just at the sense of sin and the ravaging of a demonic possession on a little boy and, and the unbelief of the crowd. And, and he comes up and he casts the demon out and the boy's healed. And so they're going, whoa. The other disciples, they said, why couldn't we do that? And he said, well, you couldn't do that because this kind only comes out through, through prayer and fasting. And then after he heals that boy, then Peter comes up and says, Oh, they're trying to collect the temple tax from us. And he said, well, what part, whose kingdom are you a part of? And he said, well, the kingdom of God. He says, then, then the children of the kingdom don't need to be taxed, but we will pay it. And so he said, Peter, go cast your line out. How many fishermen we have in here? Any fishermen? Yeah, go cast your line out. And he, and he cast his line out and pulled in a fish and opened the mouth. And Jesus said, you'll find a gold coin in there. And he found the coin and he paid the temple tax. A lot of crazy stuff in that chapter, right? So now you get to chapter 18, and this is so crazy. That's the context. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child, set them in the midst of them. Now just let's park there for just a minute. Uh, the first observation I just want to make is that, and we really need to be honest about this, that all of us, in some way or some shape or form want to be great. <laughs> I mean, it's within, our, it's within our nature. You think that you've heard of this thing, the 15 minutes of fame? How many have heard that expression? You know, you see people run when there's a camera or an opportunity to be in front of the You ever seen the people on the news? It really drives me crazy. They're doing a serious story, and then they come to somebody just sitting there, and they put the camera on them, and they, they don't say anything worth anything. They go, well, it was really uh, kind of, uh, yeah, and then, uh, that's what I think, you know. And you go, but they just wanted to be in front of the camera so bad because they wanted to be great. They wanted fame. Now think about these nine disciples. Put yourself in their shoes just for a minute. They're down there. They're not on the inner three. How many of you have lived a life where you're not on the inner three? I have. And so you're not on the inner three. You're not Peter, James, or John, right? And, and a lot of times Jesus would take them apart. And can you imagine the other nine going, sheesh, there they go again. They get all this time with Jesus. And we're left back here cooking the food and doing all this kind of stuff. And now they got to go on the mountain and they're talking about how he glowed and everything. And then we couldn't even cast this demon out. And they're going, man, what about me? Have you ever asked that question in life? Have you ever, come on, in church, heard someone get up and share a glowing testimony of how God had blessed them, and you're sitting there with a fake smile on your face because you know you're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice, but inside you're going, what about me? <laughs> right? You're going through it, and you want to be blessed. What 
And so that's where they were. You come into these first two verses and they're all gathered around and they're saying, you know, Jesus, what about me? And Jesus hears their question. And I love this, how Jesus answered questions. I think we need to learn something from that. And we could really glean something that's powerful. He took a child and he just took that child and he put the child in front of them. Jesus answered the question with an example. The most powerful way you can answer a question, especially to a child, is with an example. And he places his child in front of them. Now, I want to tell you, in that culture, that was one of the boldest things Jesus could have done. Because in their culture, just like our culture, we love children, but we don't really give a place of importance to children. Think about it. In our culture, we give a place and importance to teenagers and up. I used to shop at JCPenney's. That was my favorite store. How many grew up shopping at JCPenney's? Towncraft t-shirts. I mean, I grew up in those when I was a kid in high school. That was the only t-shirt we'd wear, Towncraft, you know? And then all of a sudden they get a new CEO and they decide they don't want to cater to the old people anymore. That's me now. <laughs> and they change all the clothes and all the designs. And I, can't, I don't even shop there anymore because I don't find anything I want. I got to go, where's the old man's store? <laughs> we, give, we give all of this honor and attention to youth, but not really to children. Children are, we love them, and, and, and we couldn't live without them. But when we think about all of the energy that we expend in everything we do, one of the most tragic things I see today are, are young parents. And, and we were older parents, 38 when we had our daughter. But I see young parents who are so caught up in their life of being young and getting a home and doing this and doing that, that the children are just kind of left out. And, and, and they're neglected in so many ways. When we had my daughter, it was like, we talk about this, we had 18 years of life together as husband and wife and we never, I mean, we did anything and everything we wanted to do. We went places, we traveled at the drop of a hat, we'd go on a trip, I mean, Regardless, and then Hannah was born. And you know, in, in time they have B.C., before Christ, and A.D., after Christ. And uh, I don't know what the D stands for, some Latin word, and I don't. But we have B.H. and A.H. <laughs> before Hannah, and we don't even remember it much anymore. And after Hannah, everything got eclipsed by that. In Jesus' day, they loved children. How many, I mean, who, what parent really, a healthy parent, doesn't love their children? But when it came to spiritual things, when it came to the kingdom, when it came to what the disciples were doing, they didn't have much patience with children. I'm so thankful you have your children in here when you worship. I know of so many churches that the minute you walk through the door, the children go that way. Because the adults don't want to be bothered with the children making noise and disrupting the service. And every service we had, we had the children in there because I said, 
even, even before my radar was on children's ministry, I said, we have to teach the children how to worship. And how can the children ever learn how to worship unless they see us worship? So my front row at our church was full of children and teenagers. That's, a, that's an oddity. But every, my front row, spitting distance for me, was always children and teenagers. So, <clears throat> getting back to this, Jesus makes this bold statement by emulating, lifting up, raising up a child in answer to their question. And that was unheard of. Well, I did a little digging on that. And um, in the InterVarsity Press Bible background commentary, it says that during Jesus' time, the most powerless members of the ancient society were little children. In most of ancient society, age increased one's social status and authority. In the Jewish culture, children were loved, not despised. But the point is that they had no status apart from that love and no power or privileges apart from what they received as total dependence on their parents. And really, that's a lot of what is true today still. When you have a church council meeting, you don't have a child on there. I'm not suggesting you do have a child on your church council. But we don't, you know, we, we don't listen to children. We love them. We, we do things for them. But we don't see them as a real message from God. So the disciples are about to learn a very important truth. Matthew 18, verse 3. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so my second observation I want to make this morning, first one is we all want to be great, but the second one is we all need to be changed. Now the word there for, for converted, I love this, it's, it's, not a word, it's not the word for salvation. Jesus is not saying, unless you're all saved and then become like little children. He's, the word for convert, or, or what does it say there, converted? The word in the Greek literally means that a revolution takes place. There's something revolutionary that has to take place in our heart and life. It's like a... a a turnover, a coup in a country that flips everything upside down. And it's something has to revolutionary, uh, in a revolutionary way, take place in our hearts. He says, if that doesn't happen, Jesus said, and you don't then become like little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of God. So, first of all, something has to take place in our lives so we can view life like a child views life. Now, I, I love that. I grew up going to Disneyland. So it's, a, it's kind of a, an ironic thing that I, I started out in California going to Disneyland, and now I live in Florida going to Disney World. And I love Disneyland. In fact, I would go five or six times a year. I loved it. I just loved it. Back then, I didn't even know if they had season passes, but I, I, I'm old enough to remember the ticket books. Did anybody, did they have ticket books here when it opened here in Florida? Uh, you, you've heard the expression, an e-ticket ride. How many have heard that expression? Well, that, that came from the ticket books of Disneyland because you'd get like three e-tickets, uh, three D-tickets, C-tickets, B-tickets, A-tickets. So the e-tickets in Disneyland were like for the, the Matterhorn 
and a couple other things like Pirates of the Caribbean would be an e-ticket and all that kind of stuff. And so you could only go on three of the big ones and then you get to go to the next one down and the next one down. Well, I, I used to mow grass. I used to wash cars. I used to save my birthday money. Anything I could do to go to Disneyland. When I got enough money, my parents would take me. It was a day back then when it was safe. They would just drop me off. I'd be there the whole day. They'd come and pick me up. You know, I mean, you didn't worry about your kids back then. It was a different world. And so I would go Lutheran day. I was in Lutheran school. I'd go birthday. Every birthday I would go two or three times when relatives came out. I'd be their tour guide and another one time or more by weeding and washing cars. Loved Disneyland. Loved it. And the thing I loved most about Disneyland was Tom Sawyer's Island. I mean, that was it for me. That was like, when I hit Tom Sawyer's Island, I was Tom Sawyer. And I never read the book, but I, but I loved it. So I'd, I'd get through the gate and I'd rip, and my, me and my friends would rip through downtown. We didn't care about downtown, the main street. We just ripped through that and we'd rip over to Frontierland and we'd get on the raft and we'd hit Tom Sawyer's Island. And man, all of a sudden, boom, it was magical. It was magical. Oh, we'd go on the bridge that went like this and we'd hide in the caves and we'd shoot the guns from the fort and we would be there for a couple hours just on Tom Sawyer's Island. And, and then one day, I think I, was, I think I was like 13. And I believe in Santa, you know, I, I mean, I, I, it took me a long time to not know a bunch of stuff, but anyway. <laughs> so I was 13 and I went there with my friend and we ran down Main Street again and we went over to Frontierland and we went there and we got on the raft and we went over to Tom Sawyer's Island and I ran to the bridge and I did it and it wasn't magical anymore all of a sudden everything changed you see I I lost the ability to see like a child I started seeing like an adult now I tell you that's a dangerous thing that's a dangerous thing so Jesus is saying, hey, you need to have a radical transformation. You need to begin to see like a child. You need to experience this revolution in your heart, in your attitude, in your thinking. Can I say that's not just talking about how our hearts have to change before we are saved. That's talking about how we live our lives as believers. If we don't live our lives with the eyes and the heart of a child, we're going to miss the kingdom of God. When you see a child, and I love this, they're so open and so, so, uh, they don't care about anybody else. They're, you know, we had a little girl, it was my niece, Ellie, and I would go, amen, and she would go, amen! <laughs> and, and everybody would chuckle, but she was just getting into it, man. You know, and then I'd have the little kids come up. My daughter, when she was young, and she'd be lifting up her hands. And, and she just would, she was really sincere. And, and, and she was getting, she was seeing things as a child that I never saw as a child. And I want to tell you, I think the reason I struggle with children's ministry is because I stopped seeing like a child. 
And I started seeing like an adult only. And I needed a radical revolution in my heart. Well, let's go on. Verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Through verse 6. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Some heavy stuff here. Third observation. We discover God's heart in the heart of a child. I'm going to say that one time just really slow for you to really think about it. We discover God's heart in the heart of a child. God honors the humble heart. He says, whoever humbles himself as this little child. Notice, just picture Jesus with that little child. It wasn't a teenager. He took a small child, hand probably on his back or his head, endearingly said, unless you humble yourself like this child, this little child, you won't be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now remember what the argument was. Peter, James, and John, they always are in the inner circle. I want to be great too. Jesus, who's going to be greatest in your kingdom and how can I become great? And he said, well, you can become humble. Like this little child. See, humility is the most important quality that God looks for in our hearts. If we're not humble, we can't receive anything. The Bible says that Moses was the most humble man alive. Study the, study the whole life of Moses. Uh, humility, he, 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 he messed up one time in his life when he failed to be humble. But the rest of his life is marked by a sense of saying, God, I don't know what to do. What should I do? Where should I go? How should I do this? It's beyond me, God, I need you. That's true humility. When you know that what God's calling you to do is way beyond you. When I sat at the, and, it, and it's not as cool as it is now, the, what is it called, sonogram, when you had the thing, right? Or the ultrasound, yeah, I don't know what it is, ultrasound. I'm standing there, and Karen's getting this ultrasound, and I'm kind of like, I was not good in childbirth either anyway. So <laughs> I was kind of like at the uh, bedside, and there's the ultrasound, and, and, and they're going, there, there's your baby. And it just like, I, 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 I think I turned white, and I just, I just looked, and I, I was like freaking out. And... and and I just thought to myself, I can't do this. How can I do this? How, how can I be a father? I, you know, I don't even like children. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, I like teaching adults and stuff, but I always freaked out with children. And, and now I'm going to have a child of my own. And there's a child on the screen. And, and what am I going to do? And, and uh, <laughs> that's humility. When you realize that what God's calling you to do, you don't have what it takes. And that you have to ask him every moment of every day. And can I tell you that even when you're parenting an adult child who's on their own, you still have to have that same position of humility because when you're parenting an adult child, you can't parent them like when they lived at home. 
and you are even at a place where you are at greater, oh God, I can't do anything. What can I do? God. And you humble yourself before the Lord. Now notice he says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Wow, I, I never really saw this in Matthew 18 before. You know, so Jesus is really focused on children. Um, I've never, you know, before when I preach on it, I wouldn't even, I'd preach on the other verses and I just pass by 1 through 14. But I thought to myself, you know, I, I want to be that person that honors a child because when I honor a child, I'm honoring Jesus. But then he says this in verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. And I want to tell you this, God will punish those who ignore, neglect, mislead, or abuse a child. God will punish. Now, J. Vernon McGee, how many remember J. Vernon McGee? Through the Bible, preacher. I would do my impersonation, but it's pretty bad. I love J. Vernon McGee. His, his, he's with the Lord now. His stuff's been on the radio forever and ever. He's an old Bible teacher, just was down and gritty. And, and, and he says this. He says, the problem was not in getting the little children to come to Jesus, but in stopping the adults from hindering the little ones in coming to the Lord. Wow. Verses 7 to 9. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. Let's just stay there for a second. We need, this is my fourth observation, we need to sacrifice anything in our lives that would keep a child from coming to know Christ. I'm so, uh, um, my daughter received Jesus Christ as her personal Savior and Lord, in a Burger King drive through line. I wasn't there, my wife was there. And they're going through the line of Burger King across from where we live. I don't know what you were doing, getting lunch or dinner, whatever it was. And Hannah's in her car seat, three years old, and she says, Mommy, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. I think you said something like, right now? <laughs> she said, right now. So they prayed and she asked Jesus into her heart in the drive through line at Burger King. Here's what I want to say. I think if, if we leave everything open for a child, I'm talking to the church now. I'm talking to you parents. That if we're not putting anything in the way that hinders them from coming to know Christ, that they're going to desire to know Christ and they're going to come to know Christ at a very early age and they're going to delight in knowing Christ and growing in Christ. I think it's going to be a very natural thing. But we need to be very careful that we are willing to set aside anything that would keep a child from coming to Christ. Now, we live in a world full of sin, temptation, and junk, right? I mean, every week, our feet get dusty and dirty just from the woes and the weight of this world. 
It, it, it may be that you have a great week with no trials, but all, all the world is giving you is negativity, negativity, negativity. And, and I found out I have a house in Texas. I just want you to know how real this stuff is. I, I, I've got my house in Texas that I'm leasing right now. And, uh, you know, I don't have like, you know, tons of money to throw around. We're leasing it because we couldn't, we didn't want to sell it because the market was too low. So we're leasing it for two years. Hopefully the market will recuperate. And we need that lease check coming in, right? So we can make the payment. <laughs> so the payment didn't come in this month on the 10th. So I called up my management company and I said, hi, Raylene. I said, um, haven't touched base with you in a while. Uh, I noticed that we didn't get a check on the 10th. She said, oh, yeah, um, they may be breaking the lease. And we go, oh. So it doesn't matter where you turn. That kind of stuff happens all the time, doesn't it? You just get hit one side or the other. You feel kind of like a ping pong ball or, or like, a, like one of those little metal balls in, in, a, in a pinball machine, just getting hit by one flapper to the next and bouncing off of things, right? You know, and you don't even get to score any points. Well, there's so much junk, we got to be careful that we don't allow that stuff to hinder our children. It says, there's offenses will come, but woe to the man by whom offenses come, verses 8 and 9. It says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now, I don't think Jesus wants us all to become pirates with an eye patch. Arr! Yeah, I had to cast that one out. What he's talking about is that we have to get rid of anything or everything that hinders a child from coming to know Jesus or from coming to love Jesus. So uh, we have to be willing to take it out of our lives. We have to repent. We have to remove it. We have to take the stumbling blocks away. Now, let me tell you something. When it comes to sin... Parents, listen to this, and grandparents, this is a, I'm, I'm quoting myself here. When it comes to sin, what a parent does in moderation, a child will do in excess. When it comes to sin, it's not true on the flip side, but it is true with sin. If there's sin in my life and I allow it in moderation, what I allow in moderation will usually be picked up by my child in excess. Now, Jesus, of course, can break that. And he does break that. But we as parents and we as believers and we as a church, we need to be willing to set aside and sacrifice anything that would keep a child from coming to Christ. Verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The fifth observation. We must prioritize the evangelism of children in the life of the church. Did you hear what I just said? 
we must prioritize the evangelism of children in the life of the church. Now, I was, about, I was all about adult ministry. That was what I was about. I love teaching adults. I love preaching to adults. I love creating adult material. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't called the children's ministry. I mean, I was a pastor, but there are other people who could do that. And, and, uh, but as a pastor or even as a, as a believer in a church, you know, I, I didn't think about the children. I didn't. I thought about the college age group that I was doing a retreat for or the adults where I felt comfortable. When, when you look at these verses, the last verses in this, all of heaven is attended to a child's needs. I love this. It says their angels are always beholding the face of their father in heaven. I know there are guardian angels, without a doubt. The Bible doesn't flesh that out and there's not a whole lot taught about angels. And beware when someone starts teaching too much about angels. Can I just say that? Because, I mean, people give them names and all sorts of goofy stuff. And we need to stay with the scriptures. What the scripture says about angels, we proclaim. What it doesn't say, we don't say. But here it says that this child's angels are always beholding the face of the Father, ready to, the Bible tells us in Hebrews, that angels are deployed to help God's saints. And so these angels are ready to be deployed to help this child, always ready to hear the father say, go to that one. How many of you can look back at your life and know that I know Kenny can. I know Kenny did some stupid stuff as a youth. I just I just know that just from hearing him speak. Right. Am I talking right, Kenny? Okay. so how, how many of you know that there was an angel involved in preserving your life? from some of the stupid stuff you did as a child. Can I hear an amen to that? Yeah. I won't even tell you what I did, you know. I mean, before I was walking with the Lord, stupid. I wasn't, I was like a Richie Cunningham, but I did some stupid things where I could have been dead many times, okay? And I know God had a purpose for my life and there were angels involved because I know there were sometimes it just didn't make any sense while I'm still standing here today. Well, God's angels and all of heaven is attentive to the needs of our children. If that's true, then what about us? Think about it. Now, I want to tell you how important it is that your children are, are being brought up in church and that you are honoring the Lord in your relationship. Because you know and I know when you read the news that bad things happen to children, don't you? Terrible things. Terrible things. And you say to yourself, well, wait a minute. If, if, if their angels are always beholding the face of the Father, ready to help this child, then, then how come some children have terrible things happening to them? Well, the Bible tells us there is something that is very unique that takes place when there's at least one believer in a marital relationship. In 1 Corinthians 7, 14, it says the unbelieving husband is set apart by the wife and the unbelieving wife is set apart by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. I want you just to put your thinking cap on just here for a moment and, and stay with me as I just kind of flesh this thought out really quickly. Now, Paul was talking to 
people who were married to unbelievers. And he says, if the unbeliever leaves, then you're not bound. But, but don't leave them. What was happening is that in the church of Corinth, a man would get saved and then he'd have a wife who wasn't saved and a wife would get saved and, and she'd have a husband who wasn't saved. It's not talking about missionary dating. It's talking about when they found themselves in a situation where one parent was a believer and the other parent wasn't. He said, if that unbelieving partner is willing to stay, do not leave them. Stay with them because it is through your prayers and your standing with Christ that that children... That child in your, in your life is set apart for God's purposes. And even that husband or wife who doesn't believe is set apart for the Holy Spirit to begin working on their life. And I want to tell you, it's the prayers of God's believing parents that cover the lives of our children and release the power of heaven and the angels in heaven to minister to our children in their times of need. I want to tell you, if it wasn't for that, none of our children would make it. Does that make sense? Verses 11 to 14, we're going to look at the first. I'm almost, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm almost done. But hey, it's 11.06 and usually go to 11.30, right? And I'm okay, I'm cool. All right, can we go to uh, verse 11? For the Son of Man has come to seek and save which is lost. So Jesus here restates and frames his mission from the Father in the context of children. Did you just catch that? He's talking about children. He's talking about a child. He's talking about the heart of God toward children. He's talking about angels on assignment, looking at the face of the Father, ready to go help who? Children. And then he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Now, how many have heard the parable of the 99 sheep and the lost one sheep? How many realize that Jesus, in context, was talking about children? Whoa. When I first realized that, it was like, all my hair. Just went, all my hair was good. That's what happened. Verse 12. <laughs> now, Kelly, you're not supposed to laugh that hard at that. Verses 12 to 13. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, as surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Now, understand, in Jewish culture... They're not even thinking about reaching the children. They're thinking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Do you understand the parallel here? And he says, listen, it's not about you. It's not about who's going to be the greatest. It's about reaching that one lost person. And that one lost person, hey, happens to be a child. In context, in this scripture. That's why I started out with context. It happens to be a child. While a child who dies before they can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we believe is covered by the grace of God. So when something terrible happens to that child that you hear in the news and they didn't have a chance to, 
come to an age of accountability where they could make a decision for Christ, we believe that God's grace covers that child and that child is ushered into the kingdom of heaven. However, I want to say this flip side because there's always a flip side. And listen to this. This is so powerful when I thought about this. A child who grows up not knowing Christ is not. I'm going to say the whole thing together. When a child who dies before they can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is covered by the grace of God, a child who grows up not knowing Christ is not covered by the grace of God. Do you know that it's harder to reach an adult than it is a child? Do you know who knows this? Radical terrorists. Do you know who knew this? Adolf Hitler. Do you know who doesn't know this? <laughs> the Church of Jesus Christ. Last verse, verse 14. Then we got some movies, a couple of videos I want to show you. Verse 14, even so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That one of these little ones should perish. Last slide before the video. I just want to make this last point. The Father takes great pleasure when the way to Jesus Christ is made simple, open, and available to each and every child. Now, I'm not saying that isn't being done here. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just trying to get us all to capture the heart of God because I believe everyone in the church needs to have this same heart. Let me give you an example. So in my business and selling to all these chains and all these businesses, here's what I've learned. You've got to always be adding new business. You can't depend on the business that you already have. Now that's a truth in any type of business or sales. And I want to tell you, there are many churches today that are dying because they have not thought about the children. And God is not going to continually bless a church that's heart is not turned toward the children. Because think about it. We're all getting older. Some of us have gray mustaches and some of us sickeningly do have still dark mustaches and beards. And some of us have hair and some of us don't. So you get a 50-50, you're okay. <laughs> Eventually, we're going to be with the Lord, right? In glory. And if we're not raising up the next generation, where's the warehouse going to be? Where's the Foursquare Church going to be? Where's the kingdom of God on earth going to be? Do you see what I'm talking about? And if we know how much Jesus cares about children, man, that should radically transform our lives. Now, I want to tell you about the children's gospel box. And then we're going to show you a couple short videos and close. There was a dear lady named Mary Lou Canada. She um, had a doctor's degree. She was part of the Fourth Square Church for years. And about 16 years ago, she's now with the Lord. She, she knew we were not reaching the children. Think about that. Foursquare has one of the strongest missions organizations in Christendom. It really does. Do you know in Brazil alone we have 12,000 churches? In Brazil alone, 12,000 Foursquare churches? In the U.S. we have like 2,500? In Brazil we have 12,000? 
And the, the, the reach of Foursquare all over the nations is just phenomenal. But she said, we're not reaching the children. So she started this ministry called the Children's Gospel Box. The Children's Gospel Box is a resource box that costs $150. And it reaches 150 children, $1 for one child. And in that box is a copy of the Jesus movie, puppets, bracelets that can tell the gospel story, little things to wave around in your hands. All they are is a straw with little things on there. Um, Bible study material. Now, and I brought some of these, I'll tell you about these in a second. The three discipleship books that I've written called Jesus Baptism in Me, Jesus the Trinity in Me, and Jesus the Holy Spirit in Me are in the gospel box. Um, there's uh, resources, tracks, uh, games, flannel boards, all of this goes, and they hold a big um, celebration. You're going to see a little bit about that for the children. Can I tell you, in other countries, they don't get to go see Toy Story. In Africa, they don't even have TVs. They don't have computers or power in a lot of the villages. And to be able to come and watch a movie for free, the village comes out. Since its inception, the Children's Gospel Box has reached one, over one million children with the gospel of Jesus Christ in only 15 years. And there has been over 700,000 recorded decisions of salvation in Jesus Christ. Isn't that? Yeah, you can give God praise for that. And when you think about the cost of that, it costs less than $2 a child to reach the children. When I was at the fellowship, we started and we started uh, just supporting the children's gospel box. The first year we raised 250 bucks. And, and we were not a big church. We raised $250. And, and, and so we kept praying. And I said, I said, Lord, we want to reach more children. We want to reach more children. And every year during October and uh, November and December, we made our last two-month missions drive, the children's gospel box. And they have little banks that we gave them, kind of like the banks you use, only paper that tells about the gospel box. Said, kids, put your change in there. And when you have it, bring it and we'll put it under the Christmas tree. And so the next year, we think we raised about 500. And then the next year, we raised about 750. When I left, we were sending about 3,500 to $4,000 a year. We were reaching 4,000 children a year with the gospel box from our church. And you think about that, that each year we were reaching, by those statistics, we were reaching about 3,000 children into the kingdom, seeing them come into the kingdom for Christ. And God allowed me in our little church to do something that's touching the world. For years, I, I had been using a little book called Jesus, Baptism, and Me. And it was just, I, I used to run off the copier and what we used it for was when a child came to know Christ and they wanted to be baptized, we just didn't baptize them. We gave them this book and sent it home with their parents. And the child and the parents would need to go through that book. And, and so the child really understood what they had done when they accepted Christ and, and how they were preparing their heart to be baptized. And when they were done, they would bring it back to me and, and they would show me the back page and I would sign it for them and put a date on it for them. And, and then when they got baptized, we'd take a picture of them and they could put it in the book. 
And I just was using it in my own church. And then one day I, I got a text from my best friend who was also a pastor. And, and he said, I'm baptizing my granddaughter today. And, and on that text was this page. And I thought, where did you get that? He said, oh, I grabbed it from your church years ago. I've been using it for years. And I thought to myself, well, wow, that's interesting. So we had been supporting uh, Foursquare Mission Press for years. And I thought, well, it probably won't come to anything, but I just sent it to them. I said, what do you think? Could you use this? And, and they said, yes. And, and now it's been printed in English and Spanish, and it's gone around to uh, nations all over the world, um, thousands and thousands of copies. And then they asked me to write one on the Holy Spirit, and so when I, when I took that daunting task on how to share the Holy Spirit with a child and how to lead them into the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I realized that, first of all, they need to know who God is. And so it became two books. I wrote a book on Jesus, the Trinity, and me so children could understand who God is. And then they could be led into the fullness of the Holy Spirit and a daily walk with the Holy Spirit. These have been translated in English and Spanish and the biggest hunger I find is in the Spanish churches. And, uh, and uh, so they're going out. I, I brought some with me today. And if you, for your children or grandchildren, would like to get some of these, then uh, if you give a donation of $10, that'll go directly to Children's Gospel Box. And you get these for free. $10 for all three. And that'll go to support 10 children in the Gospel Box. But I know we're all believers here this morning. I, I know... you. It's all family here this morning. And, and so, you know, I'm not going to have an altar call because, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that's needed. But I want to have an altar call. <laughs> and it's an altar call to your heart. Have you captured God's heart this morning? I mean, really, think about it. It could, it could revolutionize your marriage. It could revolutionize your family. It could revolutionize this church. It could revolutionize our world. God's heart is for the children. And his desire is that we be like children. So we can hear his voice without all the clutter, with all the competition, without all the baggage. A child doesn't have baggage. You tell the child a promise, they believe it. I guarantee you, you say to Joey, you know, or the, Joey and Edward, you say, hey, we'll go to McDonald's someday. He believes it. And he knows someday could be today. Is it today? 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 I mean, there's no, there's no, there's nothing that's blocking that, that, that receiving and, and believing. And, and he's there. He's eating the cheeseburger, baby. He's got the He's got the toy. I mean, you know, he's in the play area. I mean, he's already there because he believes. Church, we need to be those people again. Parents, we need to be those people for our kids. Grandparents, we need to be those people for our grandkids. We need to take away everything that might keep one of these little ones from coming to the Lord. And when we do, powerful things will happen in our lives and in theirs. Father, I thank you for this church and for 
the people who here, I know they love their children. I know they have such tender hearts toward you. And I know that they have a burden on how to reach this community for Christ. And Lord, I believe you're going to give divine strategies. I don't know what they are. And maybe they don't know what they are yet, but you know what they are. And one of the, the easiest ways to reach a parent is to touch their child. And it delights your heart when we break out of our confines and our constructs and we, we reach forward with new vision to capture the Father's heart when he said, let the little children come unto me. Let them come, let them come, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Lord, we ask you to convert us this morning and help us to become as little children. Bring a revolutionary work in our hearts and lives this morning, Lord. Bring an enlightening. Help us be willing to lay aside every weight and every sin that so easily trips us up or trips up a young one from following you. Let us be examples. Let us be transparent. Let us be authentic when we sin. In the, in the sight of our children, let them see us repent and come to our knees to ask you for forgiveness. Let them see that you are the center of our lives, of our marriages, and of this church. In everything we do, we pray, we cry out to you, Father God, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me just uh, give you a blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his shalom, his peace. In Jesus' name, amen.